bit nervous um, preaching, well, I feel nervous preaching anyway, but nervous preaching to people I don't know, um, so I don't connect with them, so it's nice to see some people I, I do know, I've known in, known in the past. May I say, we do value Charlotte very highly, uh, I'm sure you do, um, keep encouraging her, and we do, um, um, it's great to be back to see Alex again, Alex, I do, Alex did when he was at Bible College, he did three months training at our church. Did it feel like three months? Well, it was something like that. It was, it, I, have say, I have to say it was fantastic. We really, uh, uh, really loved having Alex with us. Um, ours is a very different church. Um, bigger, more cross-culturally diverse, very lower middle class, working class. And um, Alex was marvellous, getting all the same people. So I commend him to you. So anyway, we're in um, Psalm 46 um, today. Um, uh, and I just want to start off like this in terms of we are, I don't know whether it's because I'm getting old, and maybe, but we're constantly being told stress and anxiety are on the increase. And sometimes when I look out on the world, um, no wonder. Uh, we live in a world that is uh, full of fear and of threats um, to our security. Um, look at the threats to our children from internet and social media. And I don't know about you, but I feel that as a grandparent. Um, look at the conflagration in, in the Middle East and the terrorist attacks all over the world that can result from that. Look at life in the Labour Party. Can you believe what's happening? Look at the divisions in uh, British society um, that have surfaced following the Brexit vote. Um, look at the anger, the fear um, behind the Black Lives matter, not only in America, but here. And I would say, this is probably not appropriate to say normally, but look at, look at the leadership options open to the American people um, at the <coughs> present time. Um, I wasn't going to, I've got a quote here, I wasn't going to give it, I crossed it out, but uh, I, I, I gave it to my wife and it went down like a lead balloon, so I thought I'd forget about that. But this is, Jacob might appreciate this. <laughs> so this is Polybius, an ancient Greek historian. Um, each constitution has a vice engendered in it and inseparable from it. In kingship, it is despotism. Uh, rules just one man for himself. In aristocracy, it is oligarchy, the rule of the few, not for the majority, but for themselves. And in democracy, the savage rule of violence. And he says it is impossible that each of these should not, in the course of time, change into this vicious form. Um, so we live in a world of fear, and when fear comes near, uh, we find we are weak. Some people have more inner strength, more confidence, because of their personality and upbringing, but all of us have a breaking point. 
And that's where Psalm 46 comes in. But Psalm 46 assures us, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Verse 7, God, the Lord Almighty is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. And verse 11 again, the Lord Almighty is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Uh, Psalm 46 um, describes God's power over all the forces of chaos and conflict and assures us that there is no trouble where God is not. Most um, commentators, at least the ones I've seen, um, think of the psalmist describing three different scenes. Uh, first of all, nature in tumult, that's verses 1 to 3. It's, sort of, it's a worst case scenario. All the Hollywood disaster movies rolled into one. Um, the Hebrews uh, were not a seafaring nation. They didn't trust the sea. The, the sea was um, liable to all sorts of unpredictable uh, moods. They preferred to have their feet on solid ground. And they sang songs about the earth never being moved. But here, the earth is giving way. It's Genesis 1. In reverse. Then verses 4 to 6, we have the city um, under siege. No one goes in or out, shut up for days, um, dependent on ever diminishing resources. Um, I don't know if any of you have read the siege of Leningrad or had a look at um, Aleppo or some of the cities in the Middle East have been in this situation. The Bible describes um, city sieges where Mothers uh, become so desperate they eat their own babies. Something absolutely unimaginable. And then um, verses 8 to 10, the desolations of war, um, where we're invited to view the destruction war leaves in its wake. Um, you've only got to think of Syria for that. And yet it's in this context we get um, that favourite verse of um, Christian Facebook pages and posters and so on. Um, usually um, put up against um, an idyllic rural scene <laughs> with little lambs skipping and so on. Um, but the poster really ought to show a battlefield with corpses and engines of war strewn all over the place. And God saying, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So three stanzas, three pictures of desperate times and the assurance that God is in the tumult, God is in the besieged city, God is on the battlefield. When the world is falling apart, he is our answer to fear, when God's city is under siege, he is the answer to despair. And because he will be the victor in the final day, he is the answer to anxiety. So we have an ever-present help in time of trouble. We have a city that will not fall. And we have an assurance that God will put an end to all rebellion. So whoever was praying for that, earlier on, here is our assurance that will take place.
Um, so there, there's my blog. Um, but I, I need to get on to the three points we've got um, in your sheet. So let me, let me say that. But let me say it could be that instead of three different um, disaster situations here, we are, it's actually just describing one situation um, where um, the roaring waters of verse 3 is matched by the roaring nations in verse 6 and the shaking mountains um, in um, verse 2 and 3 is uh, matched by the shaking kingdoms in verse 6 and the falling mountains by the city that will not fall. So maybe verses uh, 2 and 3 are really talking about political earthquakes and toppling kingdoms, the consequences of which are so massive um, they need the language of verses 2 and 3. It looks like the world as they knew it is coming to an end. Now, I was pleased when um, um, you read the psalm together, um, you read the title. You will notice in the title at the top, or the instructions to the worship leader, um, there is no historical superscription, as you sometimes get. Um, so, um, but um, there was an historical situation in the Old Testament that this psalm would fit whether it's meant to or not I don't know but this historical situation is so significant in Old Testament times it's, it's repeated three times you get, you get a story told three times in the Old Testament it's when King Hezekiah was king of Judah and the Assyrian armies were sweeping across the Middle East, bent on world conquest. And it's described by Isaiah the prophet as a mighty flood. And it causes political turmoil in all the nations that are facing this flood as it comes towards them. And it leaves shattered kingdoms in its way. And Judah is not exempt. It comes right over the borders of Judah, right up to the walls of Jerusalem. So Hezekiah becomes the king of a city. That's all that's left to him that is under siege. Verse 4 in that situation is interesting um, because there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God because there was no river in Jerusalem. made it very vulnerable um, in a time of siege. The nearest source of river was the Gihon Spring, about 500 uh, metres away. But unknown to the Assyrians, Hezekiah had built an underground aqueduct, 500 metres long, 3 metres high, um, one of the wonders of ancient engineering because they started at both ends and met in the middle. How they did that, I have no idea. So, I don't know whether that reverse was referring to that. It may, may well not be. It something else. But they had a river of which the Assyrian army knew nothing. But more importantly, they had a god the Assyrian king knew nothing. And when he speaks his word which brings us to the third stanza, uh, there is total silence over the camp of the Assyrians. For they get up and 187 
thousand corpses are there, which historians put down to a plague, um, a plague of mice. So whether whether that that psalm has got that in mind or not, I don't know. Psalm 48 has got a similar sort of situation in mind. It talks in verse 4 about when the kings joined forces, when they advanced together, um, they saw Jerusalem and were astounded and they fled in terror. It's that sort of thing. But this this psalm puts us in the midst of earth-shattering events and calls for courage, we will not fear, for confidence, she will not fall, and for conversion, be still, know um, that I am God. So let me just look at those three things. Call to courage, it's here. Um, I don't know about you, but I find it incredibly easy to say to people, uh, my fellow believers, when they're in difficulties, don't be afraid. And to be really mean it, to be absolutely confident the Lord won't let them down. But I find it a very different matter when I'm in the midst of trouble and someone's trying to say that to me. Um, but that we will not fear here is not the foolish boast of those untouched by catastrophe, but a summons to courageous, defiant faith by those who felt fear and saw their world falling apart, but refused to be cowed by fear. Because God is their refuge and their strength. So I think of um, uh, some of the Old Testament stories, uh, David, uh, Ziglag, I don't know if you, you know this one, but um, he's been persecuted by Saul, he's gone over to the Philistines, He's had to join them for safety. Um, he's lined up with them in battle against Israel of all people. And God gets him out of the situation. So 60 mile uh, group mark, uh, route march back to Ziglag and they found their city burnt to the ground. All their possessions looted. Their women and children taken from them. And the men who are used to following David from success to success to success suddenly round on him and talk of killing him because of this disaster. And David himself feels the same despair and talks about him weeping and weeping. But then it tells us he strengthened himself in the Lord his God and marshalled his troops, went on a rescue mission, um, kept his head when all else were losing theirs. Felt the despair, but strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Or think of um, Paul, Acts 27, um, uh, in the storm, a story that was impressed me right from when I was very young, because Paul is a prisoner. And after 14 days of storm, where nobody's really eaten very much, and where the crew have despaired of life, and are thinking of ways of saving themselves um, and letting everybody else go down, it is Paul, the prisoner, who becomes effectively the captain of the ship. When everyone else was losing their heads, he kept as he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Or... That, um, the, you know, the, situ the historical situation this psalm may well be about, the Assyrian 
uh, troops uh, sweeping across the Middle East and coming right up to the walls of Jerusalem. And Hezekiah, who has engaged in all sorts of dubious political alliances to avoid this, and when all those failed, when all his allies let him down, resorting to bribery, sending all the wealth he had over to the king of Assyria, please, please, please don't slaughter us. And the king of Assyria taking the money and coming against them. Hezekiah is driven um, to seek his refuge in God alone. But when he does so, he does it with real faith. He prays a, a very, I mean, I suppose it's a normal prayer for the Bible, but it's an extraordinary prayer. Lord God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. That's how he starts his prayer. He's, before he begins to cry out in desperation and say, you've heard these arrogant words of the Assyrian, what he, 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 he reminds himself of who God is. He goes into the temple, he spreads out a letter before God. Um, remember, holy of holies, there is the ark, the symbol of God being enthroned between the cherubim among his own people. And he prays, Lord God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and so in, in one sentence he approaches a God who is near, vast, mighty. Lord of all, Lord over all, yet with his people. Um, I'm sure you're the same as I am, but when, we're, when, we're, when all hell is breaking loose, we tend to read present circumstances as the final word in reality. But the final word on reality is actually he who had the first word, who made heaven and earth, who continues to sustain everything by his word, uh, who is more solid and firm than the earth he created and more enduring than the mountains. So people, people may mock Christians for being too weak, weak um, to face the world um, without an invisible friend. Uh, but the reality is everyone needs a hiding place, a place they can escape into. And some of those places are wholesome, like family, music, literature, exercise, and so on. Some of them are unwholesome, like alcohol and drugs and pornography. But when the world falls apart, there is only one secure refuge and hiding place who not only hides us but strengthens us and perhaps the test of whether God will be our refuge and strength on that day on the evil day is whether he is our refuge and strength when life is just merely frustrating and stressful and tiring so um, if the call, the call to courage. Therefore, 
we will not fear though the earth give ways. Call to confidence. What is that confidence? It's that the city will not fall, verse 5. What's the basis of that confidence? God is within her. Um, he is, verse 4, the source of her ref daily refreshment and reinvigoration. He is, verse 5, uh, the guarantee that she will be rescued. She appears to have no resources of her own, but God is um, within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Where is God when the world is falling apart? It's very easy for us to think God is in heaven, untouched by all that's going on here. And there is a sort of element of which that is true. So Psalm 2 talks about why do the nations conspire and people's plot in vain, and the one who is enthroned in heaven laughs at them. So puny. How can they really overthrow his purposes? Um, but the goal of history is not, um, despite one of the songs we sang, um, <coughs> up in the sky. Um, the goal of God's purposes in history is the city of God coming down from heaven, that God may dwell among his people. So the Old Testament Exodus story ends not when Joshua takes them into the land, but when God through David gives them rest in the land and the ark of God, this symbol of God enthroned in the midst of his people is taken from the borders of Israel where it's been for far too long to the heart of Israel up Mount Zion from where he will rule and join his throne on Zion and his throne on heaven. And um, equally, you know, the, the climax of the New Testament Exodus story, when our Passover lamb is sacrificed for us and we are redeemed by the blood of the lamb, is not just when we are forgiven that we are forgiven. It's that we uh, enter into um, the heavenly Jerusalem. So Hebrews, for example. Um, would say to you, you can read it in chapter 12, you are not just meeting a handful of people um, in a hall in Streatham. You have come, today, you have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, and so on. We are, as Jesus says, the city on a hill, that cannot be hidden. And this psalm assures us that that city will not fall. So this, this psalm is not just um, great encouragement for the individual believer, but it's also a call to a great cause. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill, let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth, if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Psalm 137, I think. I don't know if any of you have heard of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, some of you may have heard of him. An old preacher, but he was a very famous preacher in his day. Um, sort of middle of the 20th century. And he, he wrote a great book called Spiritual Depression. 
and in it he relates how when the Spanish Civil War broke out in um, 1936, um, the psychiatric hospitals by and large emptied. It wasn't that they were forcibly closed and all the patients were kicked out. He says it was because suddenly the patients have got something bigger to worry about and engage themselves in than their own personal, private neuroses. Um, here is a call to a great cause. If we love uh, Galatians 2 verse 20, uh, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me for our individual uh, um, assurance. We should equally love Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25 for our corporate identity. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Um, to purify for himself a bride and so on. Um, Christ loved the church. We should love the church. We should be most passionately concerned about the welfare of the church. And equally, we should be assured God's church will not fall. The city will not fall. Um, okay, I know church can be difficult. Um, I know too many professing Christians have given up on church and just sit at home and maybe listen to messages on, on the internet. Um, I understand why they do it. Um, I've been tempted in my time as well. Uh, but the city, the church, not just individuals, it's a focus of God's attention and love. And a city under siege may be very apt for us today. Um, the secularists are taking away all our values and suddenly making them uncool or maybe antisocial. And Muslims are taking our territory and threatening our position in societies. No doubt Islam is a dominant religion in London today. Um, so a city under siege is a very apt image uh, for the church. Um, but the Lord of hosts is with us. That's the Lord of armies. Do you remember, do you remember that story of Elisha when um, they wake up one morning and the city they're in, Dothan, is surrounded by Syrian troops and um, Elisha's servant is terrified thinks we're absolutely finished and Elisha just says Lord open his eyes and he sees surrounding those troops an army of angels um, the Lord of hosts the Lord of armies is with us committed to his people uh, Psalm 46 was one of Martin Luther's favourites I don't know if you've heard of Martin Luther famous um, reformer when um, things were going badly he would say to his best friend Philip, come let's sing the 46th psalm. There was a great tonic for fear, she will not fall. And then finally it's called conversion. Who is God speaking to here? Could be the church. Be still. Stop fretting. I will be exalted. Um, that's how um, William Carey took it. 
1812. He'd been in India, where, yeah, the father of the modern missionary movement. He'd been in India just under 20 years. His printing works was burned to the ground. Um, all the work of those years gone up in smoke. Um, at first he was dumbfounded. But the next Sunday he preached on verse 10. And he did so with courage and with confidence that God would be exalted among the nations. A newspaper man was present in the congregation. He said, in the, in the blaze of the fire, we saw the grandeur of the enterprise. And within two months, uh, people reading that story had contributed money and the printing works um, were restored. So these words may be addressed to the church. Don't fret, don't fear. God will be exalted among the nations. Derek Kidner, um, who wrote a little commentary on, on the book of Psalms, says, thinks these are words of rebuke, as when Jesus stilled the storm, in which case they're probably addressed to the world rulers rather than the church. It's not stop fretting, you cannot lose, but stop fighting, you cannot win. It's one of the Bible's many ultimatums. Um, but the Bible's many ultimatums are often followed by great invitations. Um, Psalm 2. Therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. That's the warning. You're not going to win. But with it comes an invitation. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Or Peter on the day of Pentecost. This Jesus, uh, you delivered up into the hands of lawless men who crucified him. But God has raised him. And he seated him at his right hand, pouring out his Holy Spirit as you can all see. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's the warning. But with it comes the invitation. Repent, be baptised for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises to you and to your children. So um, that's why I've put the heading, A Call to Conversion, whether it's a church needs converting, stop fretting, or whether it's a world um, needs to stop fighting, make your peace now, or wait for the day when peace will be enforced. But God will be exalted among the nations. So here is a call to uh, courageous, confident witness, whatever our circumstances. A basis on which we can say, we will not fear. On which we can say, she will not fall. On which we can say, God will be exalted among us. So let me pray on the lesson. Mm -hmm. 
Father, we thank you we can come to you, our God and Father, as weak and fearful creatures. And know that you are with us. Know that we can come to you in the name of Jesus, who is God with us, born into our sinful, squalid world, ministering among us, bearing our sins on the cross. Thanking you that he is the man exalted at your right hand for the sake of your people, the church, for whom he gave his life. So help us to know you are with us and that you are for us. And help us to be turned toward yourself, tuned to you through Jesus Christ, trusting in your promises and in your presence. We ask in Jesus' name.